Hi everyone, I wonder if you can hear the birds there in the trees. Maybe not particularly. Look, this one's going to be a bit longer. This is responding to call-ins about the linguistic pedantry episode, which I warn people off. I can't believe how many people actually listen to it. They're all so tightly connected that I couldn't see any way of splitting it up. But as usual, um, there's not much RPG content, so if you're not particularly interested in the continuation of that discussion, you can move along. Actually, that's not strictly true. I've just now got one in from Spike Pit, which brings the topic back to RPGs. It's good at doing that, you'll notice, Spike Pit. So, um, yeah, towards the end of this, you will find some, well, I think it's fairly interesting, (laughs) RPG content. Alright, so I'm going to kick off then with Colin Green of the legendary Spike Pit podcast. There's a couple of messages from him here and then um, he does call in again later, as I say, bringing the topic back to RPGs. Um, but I'll, I'll do these ones first and deal with that one a bit later on. Cheers, Colin. Enough frivolity. I really enjoyed that episode, Dave. Most enlightening. And um, I, I really, <laughs> I know I'll take the piss, but I, I, I really do like your fancy words. They just kind of stick in your mind. Um, I mean, uh, what was it? A persiflage. I, I, I'll never forget that word now. It's um, it's interesting, and I bet, I bet your um, your linguistic studies were interesting as well. And I totally can understand how the more you understand those things, the less irritating it all becomes. Uh, you often you often see that the the people who know stuff don't need to bang on about it all the time. It's always the tryhards who have to kind of shout the loudest. Oh, yeah, and another thing. Did I notice you kind of correct yourself with a pronunciation and pronunciation? Because I've, I've, heard, I've heard that, and uh, I, I feel like you've probably got a little story about that as well. So, yeah, I noticed it, and um, I, I was intrigued why, why you did that. So I'm going to say thanks, Colin. Thanks very much for listening. I'm glad you enjoyed it, and thanks for the kind words. And we've got more of a discussion to have later on, but I will pick up on the, uh, the pronunciation thing. So <laughs> you sent me listening back to a full episode, which I really try hard not to do (laughs) I must say having done so gosh constant listeners (laughs) you do put up with a lot (laughs) so thank you all for that Um, but I don't think I do I don't think I do correct myself there what I I probably 
stammer and stutter a bit because um you know even though i've been doing this since may it hasn't got any easier or more natural <laughs> my delivery remains just as halting as it ever was so i don't think i'm doing that but 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 you did make me think of another thing there's a funny coincidence here i've recorded a couple of episodes on fighting fantasy and the riddling reaver and uh, i wanted to refer to the italicized text the text in italics um that gives room descriptions and stuff listening back to bits there I do occasionally listen back i've made myself a liar i listen back to little bits if i think they might not come out all right but listening back to bits there i heard myself say on two occasions italicized now italicized is the conventional british pronunciation italicized is the conventional american pronunciation i heard that and i thought i've just done an episode on linguistic pedantry and here i am saying italicized i don't think i've ever said italicized before i've always said italicized which is the proper british british pronunciation so i thought well maybe i should go back and change it because i won't hear the end of it and i thought well no well firstly because i can't be bothered this is guerrilla podcasting and i don't do that but secondly i thought well i you know i'd make myself a liar again wouldn't i here here am i um attacking the idea of linguistic correctness and uh you know orthodoxy in i don't know orthodoxy in grammar and meaning and pronunciation and there i am going back and correcting myself saying italicized which i've clearly just i've just picked up a bit of americanism probably from doing all this um all this podcasting and listening to all the us podcasts so i left it in but it did make me chuckle when you raised that point Hi Dave, really interested by your linguistic pedantry episode Um, and obviously being an Essex boy raised by a father who was from the East End. um, A couple of things spring to mind. Uh, Firstly, um, being told, uh, don't say what, say pardon and subsequently learning that that isn't actually correct and uh, forever being corrected um, for not pr- pronouncing my T's, um, but only recently noticing that my dad says something, uh, <laughs> which I, I never really noticed before, but now it really grates on me every time I hear him say it. I think all those years you were correcting me for how I, how I was speaking, and uh, there you are saying something. So that was Spencer, free thrall of Keep Off The Borderlands. I'll tell you what, I am having fun with this episode. It's going to go a little bit over, but I am having fun. Yeah, so this ties in with Colin's point, I think, that these obsessions with orthodoxy usually reveal quite a bit about about the one who has them. They reveal much more about that than they do about what actually is orthodoxy. But this goes further than a point about uh, pomposity or hypocrisy. And incidentally, Spencer, I'm not maligning your father by attaching those things to him. I'll come back to that later. Because you've got to think about, you know, what's it really saying? There is, a, there is a tragedy to what's going on there. Because what it's really saying is, you know, I'm going to correct you, son. I'm going to pick you up because I don't want you to sound like the people around you, like the people around us. I don't even want you to sound like me. I want you to sound better because I want 
better things for you and it's worth exploring that idea of better i mean when you look at people who learn received pronunciation in speech yeah people who learn to talk posh if you like they are not taught it they're not picked up on it they're not corrected on it any more than any other child is as they learn the speech which is all around them all the time i mean the tragedy of the perspective i was pointing out is that obviously that's not the speech which is all around you all the time it's an idea of a of, it's an idealized speech whereas if you learn rp you learn it effortlessly in the same way that you know everybody learns their pronunciation effortlessly you just pick it up from the people around you from the other people at school from the people in your family from the people that your family associate with so if you learn receive pronunciation um that was just as easy for you and represents no extra effort on your part than any other kind of pronunciation that you might have learnt. Now, the added benefit to that is that we have agreed to assign high cultural value to that particular way of speaking. So if you have learnt RP, you have effortlessly, just as effortlessly as everybody else <laughs> learns how to speak, learnt something which is of high cultural value. So you've got that added gift in culture because we agree to a, a assign it high status. Um, which will, you know, which will take you further in, in social circles. Now, the reason why that's tragic is, of course, your father is actually by, by himself assigning that higher cultural value to a particular kind of speech, is being complicit in the means of working class oppression. What we ought to do is refuse to assign that high cultural value to a particular effortlessly learned manner of speaking. Yeah, it's entirely contingently valued, valued because it is the, the, the particular way that the cultural elite happen to speak uh, and becomes an effortlessly way that they can maintain their distinction from the rest of society. Hey Dave, it's Steve Gothridge Manor. I want to wish you good luck on your zine. Mud Harbor sounds interesting. I'm going to throw my hat into that ring too this year. and Hopefully uh, uh, you'd be successful at it. I mean, uh, it sounds like fun. It sounds like you're going to have fun with yours and everything. And as far as the H thing, uh, I got I got nothing on that one. I, I don't know. I've never heard anybody do that over here. Uh, so luckily, I think that would be irritating actually now that I think of it. But who knows? All right, Dave, take care and best of luck on ZQuest. Hey Tim, cheers for the call in, it's great to hear from you as always, uh, I'm really glad, yes I've, I've been following you on Facebook, seeing the various bits that you're sharing um, in your preparations for ZineQuest, I'm very excited about that, I will be backing you, I'm glad you're doing that and uh, yeah, thanks for the encouragement, uh, this will be my first foray into anything commercial, um, got lots of support from Claire and uh, really hoping I pull it off. Yeah, on H, <laughs> this is something, yeah, I forget. I forget my global audience. <laughs> In the UK, this is pretty well known, although you'd be surprised how many people do think, I mean, as I established in the last episode, I'm not bothered about orthodoxy, but you'd be amazed how many people that do think um, H is the orthodox pronunciation. What it is, it's a hypercorrection. Hypercorrection is the phenomenon where, you know, it looks like something should follow a rule, um, and in fact it doesn't uh, but you apply the any the rule anyway um, 
you know, out of a concern for correctness. So the word H, the spelling of the letter H, sounds like it should, or it feels like it should start with H. Uh, and so people add in the H. Um, and it is, I mean, it's, it's, it's class-based in the UK. So it is a, it is a working-class pronunciation, more or less. Um, and so when you're, when you're picking people up for saying H, as I used to do until I learnt better, you're basically picking them up for being working class. The other interesting thing is, of course, as I mentioned before, languages change. H is now so widespread and increasingly widespread that in as much as there is orthodoxy, the orthodoxy is only in usage, um, this will, I think, um, become the preponderant usage and eventually um, the... Uh, the previously correct version H, I think, will, will drop out of use. And that's just part of what happens with language. Now I've got a couple of messages from Liren of updates from the middle of nowhere. I'm so pleased to hear from you, Liren. Uh, Liren doesn't introduce herself. You sent me these uh, by email because they're a little bit longer. I'm absolutely chuffed to receive them. And uh, now I've got to play them. Two things came to mind as I was listening to you. One thing that came to mind was... I think anything that other people do that just really irritates you, like in the way that it sounds like someone saying H differently than you thought it should be said bothered you when you were younger, anytime that kind of knee-jerk reaction happens, I think it is absolutely beneficial to stop and analyze why. As I've gotten older, I've realized that there are some things that just grate on me. You know something that grates on me that's like that is when people say the word ain't. Why does that matter? I don't know why that matters. But when I was younger, especially, as I've gotten older, I have especially, oh my goodness, I moved from one region of the United States to another, and then from that region to a third region that I had never lived in before. And I have to say that taught me a lot of humility about what I think is right and what I think is wrong. Uh, because where I landed here in rural Virginia, there are a lot of people that have really pretty heavy southern accents. And I grew up in nor up north in Michigan. And it I never knew I mean, I never no one ever said it out loud. But growing up, I had a bias against southern people. I didn't know that. I didn't really know that until I moved here, as a matter of fact. And it's just like this ingrained thing where someone who had an accent, like my brain would just go, oh, well, they're not very bright. And you know, I'm not proud to say that at all, but it is the truth. I really did have that feeling. And, and I, I remember when I recognized that I was just so like, oh my gosh, I was like aghast at myself for being such a snob. But then I realized, you know, it's not about that. It's about where I was raised and it's about the kind of things that um, my parents watched on TV and, you know, that even just that era, even. I don't know, it's really interesting, but I, I have found that anything that really grates on me that people do that I have a really pretty knee-jerk reaction to definitely warrants some closer inspection. Anyways, I just wanted to share that. I That was a very interesting episode, as a matter of fact. I like what you said about language changing. That really made me smile at my hatred of the word ain't. Because when they put ain't in the dictionary and put slang after it, I was outraged. Realize that was a long time ago. 
I another realization I've had as I've gotten older now that I'm 50 is that in your early 20s goodness outrage is right there constantly within reach you know it actually takes a little bit to get me up to outrage at this point I mean you know kick a puppy I'm gonna have a serious issue but you know what I mean like I think about it now and I used to get really outraged about the silliest things anyway all right I'm going off on a tangent now I'm gonna stop thank you for a thoughtful episode I really appreciate you sharing it okay it wasn't exactly about gaming whatever I love Anchor because the hosts are often people. They're not just their hobby. Your whole life doesn't revolve around your hobby. So I like the fact that your whole podcast doesn't revolve around your hobby either. So anyway, thanks for sharing. Have a good one. Yeah, thanks again for this, Liren. I also like Anchor because the hosts are often people. I mean, sometimes they're not people, but uh, they often are. <laughs> no, I know what you mean, uh, and I don't mean to be pedantic. <laughs> yeah, on the on the H thing, yeah, I mean, my intention was, I, I agree with you entirely, everything you've just said. My intention was to talk about one of my own prejudices that I've, uh, that I've managed to let go of. You know, as a, I, suppose, I suppose that was my attempt at um, humility. But it's funny, it's not a knee-jerk. It was actually, I mean, that prejudice against H was impressed upon me. It's a prejudice which was really strongly held by my parents. It's funny, this goes back to uh, the point I was making about Spencer and the tragedy of all of this. It was a prejudice that was really strongly held by my working-class parents against the working-class pronunciation that they heard all around them. The tragedy, of course, is that if they thought by whatever it is they were impressing into me that they were going to make it any easier for me through my speech to pass as one of the cultural elite <laughs> they really had another thing coming I mean listen to me <laughs> I've got another one from Liren here and again I absolutely agree with everything that you say I was going to play these together and just give that response right until I get to the last line and then you drop a little bomb um, maybe an almost deliberate red rag which uh, I cannot resist and and I'm going to charge at. Another thought I had about this was that I have heard the word pedantry used before, but it really needs to be said. I have only ever heard it used in academia. I work at a college. The only people I have ever heard use the word pedantry in that form has been professors. <laughs> so I think, you know, uh, in different fields, people use different terms. And I think sometimes they use those terms to invoke authority or status. And I'm certainly not saying that's what you're doing. I'm just saying that when you're in that field, I think it is um, part of being an expert in a field is learning the terminology and using it. And as a person who wrote training for years, my concern was always, okay, we need to say whatever we want to say in a way that the most people are going to understand it. And if you want to do that, then you have to be really careful which words you invoke because words that are only really field related, for example, uh, right now, I work in a department where some of the people I work with handle licensing of software. And so they talk about uh, perpetual licenses and subscription licenses. And to the layman who doesn't think a whole lot about things like licenses for software, the difference between those two things is pretty freaking opaque. Perpetual license is a one-time purchase. You buy it once, you have it. 
subscription license. That one's easier, of course, but I can see how people get confused between those two things. And so I am forever having to correct them when they're helping people or when they're writing web pages or content that they need to remember. Not everyone knows what those terms mean. So I know that can be really hard. Uh, I, it's interesting to me, you know, you pointed out that there's different, different kinds of pedantry. And it really made me think about the fact that I wouldn't know that if I didn't work at a college and I hadn't heard professors talking in those terms. If I heard the word pedantic, I automatically think linguistic pedantry because to the layman, I think that's what that word means. And that is what the dictionary says. So I understand your point and I understand Collins. Yeah, so thanks very much again, Lear. And as I said before, I'm just going to agree with pretty much everything you said. Um, the points you make about terminology, they, they, they're going to come up again later because they link to something that Spike Pitt um, asks about. So the only thing I'm going to pick up on is your claim that that is what it says in the dictionary or that is what the dictionary says, right? So <laughs> I was going to talk more about dictionaries last time and I thought nobody's going to want to listen to me banging on about dictionaries, but I'm sorry, you've raised it, so I'm going to do it. So, I mean, the first thing is, there is no dictionary. Let's just look at what's happened. Spike Pitts found a defini definition in his dictionary that he's accessed, um, which defines pedantry purely in terms of pedantry about language. I can point to two or three di different dictionaries on my shelf where pedantry is defined in that way, and also more broadly. So, you might say we're at we're at an impasse. Certainly there is no the dictionary. But you might say we're at an impasse, but I don't think we are. So my mum, when I point out to my mum that, uh, you know, some of the things that her right-wing newspaper tells her are a bit problematic, um, she says, well, look, you can't even trust the newspapers anymore. If my brackets right-wing newspaper is telling me one thing and your brackets left-wing newspaper is telling you something else, well, you can't even tr trust the news. And I always say, well, you have got an option because um, you can fact-check. You can go and actually test out what the newspaper's telling you by looking at other sources, checking out the facts. And uh, dictionaries aren't exactly the same, but we do have uh, an option like that. But I suppose firstly we've got to think about um, what a dictionary is. Um, because, you know, dictionaries don't resolve discussions about usage. What a dictionary actually is, it represents the best efforts of a group of scholars. Different groups of scholars make different dictionaries to go through the various attestations of particular words, you know, where they appear in written literature, and to look at their meaning in context, to identify more similar clusters of meanings or identify distinctly different meanings, uh, and then to list those in the dictionary and to attempt to give an account of those words, using other words, of course, of what their meanings are in those particular contexts where they have been used in, you know, written stuff, recorded speech, and so on. And it's worth pointing out that, you know, your shorter dictionaries are usually derived from much bigger dictionaries where a lot more um, of the different meanings and a lot more of the different words are defined. Your internet dictionaries, I try and warn people off internet dictionaries, but they're quite often patched together from multiple different sources. And it's worth saying that there are dictionaries and dictionaries, and some of them are based on different principles of scholarship, different groups of people and so on. But having said fact check, there is a, there is a thing that you can, you can do. You can go 
to your library where there's one of the bigger dictionaries. So in the UK, the accepted standard is the Oxford English Dictionary. These multi-volume dictionaries take up a whole shelf in the library and you can do it with uh, pedant, pedantry. You can look that up. And what you will find there, which serves as evidence, but on that more in a moment, is just a whole record. So you'll get, you'll get the different uh, possible definitions based on context, and then you'll get the various attestations. What they do, they'll take you through earliest uses that we know of so far, all the way up to more contemporary uses, and they'll give you example quotations of where the word has been used uh, in that particular way. So you, you can actually resolve these kinds of disagreements to an extent by taking your Oxford English Dictionary off the shelf, having a look for pedantry and seeing all of the numerous attestations to the wide range of different types of pedantry. Now having said all that I'm gonna undermine it or flip it by pointing to the extent that that can really be considered evidence because let's look at what it is. These various different attestations, these quotations, which are all um, exemplary of a whole number of others that have been recorded, are simply that. They are records of usage. So all a dictionary does is point out to usage. Um, so what that means actually is that a dictionary can't actually overcome usage. <laughs> Some usages aren't sufficiently widespread to get any recorded in the dictionary, but it may be, and here's where I would actually agree with Colin, but I wouldn't ever point to a dictionary to resolve it, but it may be um, that the use of pedant to mean anything other than a linguistic pedant is dropping out of usage. Um, if that is the case, the Oxford English Dictionary does not yet record it that way. It still attests to all of the other ways that the word pedant can be used. But can you see there, if, if, if in fact Colin is right that linguistic pedant is redundant because people only ever use the words pedant uh, in, in reference to language, that he, he's not right because of what the dictionary says. Because you can go and look in, uh, in the dictionaries and they will record the usage that I'm pointing about. But all a dictionary does is point to usage. So it can't, in fact, trump usage. And that is why, although it seems counterintuitive, when you're embroiled in discussions about what words mean, discussions about the meanings of words, you don't actually get very far by waving dictionaries around. There you go, that's worth saying again. So I'm conceding that Spike Pitt might actually be right and that the use of pedantry to mean anything other, other than pedantry about language is um, pretty much disappearing. But if he is right, it's not because of what the dictionary says because uh, the bigger dictionaries say otherwise. But that is because dictionaries, although people tend to think of them as such, are not the arbiters of orthodoxy. They do not lay down the law on how a word is to be used. They simply record the various uses of a word. And since they do that, they, they struggle actually to catch up with how, uh, how words are being used right up to the minute. And that is why, of course, over time, dictionaries change. Right. 
that's already a long episode that was going to at least be the end but it isn't now because i was talking about spike pit there i've invoked him so we've got a couple more call-ins from spike pit and i'm very glad i did so here's the first one i'll tell you what dave it is fascinating that you when you talk about linguistic prejudice and how it's socially acceptable i don't i don't understand it i've suffered quite a lot through my life as you can imagine with with this kind of prejudice constantly being corrected it it's embarrassing and then people also tend to assume that you're uneducated and you're stupid just because you've got a a working class urban accent people they want to jump to conclusions and judge you don't know anything about the person but as soon as they open their mouth in my case people are making uh, decisions and judgments if i was to do that in relation to sort of other minorities or accents i I would be criticized heavily thanks very much colin what can i say except i feel your pain and this is why when these conversations start up about whether a word's being used correctly whether whether the grammar's right I tend to I tend to pitch in and say hold on you know <laughs> is the communication happening that's what matters maybe the rest of it we should we, we should think about what we're doing when we're picking people up uh, on stuff like that I do I do I think it's the last culturally socially acceptable form of prejudice and uh, hopefully it won't be for very long I mean in my own case yeah come from that working class background first person in my family to go to university went off to Oxford um, on paper <laughs> I've got a lot of the products of what you might expect from uh, f- from someone who, who 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 wasn't from that background you know from someone who was independently educated middle class upper class or whatever um, but you can imagine I show people <laughs> I show people my articles or my books um, and I still get it now I talk to people about it in the pub what you you do that you wrote that nah <laughs> and that's and that's with a little you know some of the edges softened a little bit maybe by a few years at Oxford but here's an interesting an interesting thing I mean I, I'm I'm an interesting study in um, in Bourdieu's work in distinction uh, I'm, I'm imagining listeners aren't massively interested in talking about cultural capital but there is an interesting thing that Bourdieu says well obviously obviously your own level of education has a big impact on your taste and on your appreciation of various sort of literary musical other products but once you take that into account what has the biggest influence parents level of education and income so once you're similarly educated parents level of education income um, still makes a massive difference and I'm quite a good study in that because I've been educated to the highest level in an elite institution so you pick up things along the way you get you develop a lot of that cultural capital so I you know 
writing's pretty good, my written grammar, my vocabulary is pretty extensive, and then I know a few things about what books I'm supposed to have read, picked up a few things about film. You know, these are what, what, what Bourdieu calls the more legitimate domains. But outside of that, in the less legitimate domains, things like music and food. I still don't know one classical composer from another. I don't appreciate opera. I don't know the difference between wines. You know, all of that stuff, even though I've been educated to that level, all of that stuff has been left completely untouched, which would have been very different if my parents' um, income and level of education had been otherwise. And yet, of course, these, um, these forms of taste, knowing about opera, knowing about wine and things like that, are still means by which uh, the elite distinguish themselves from other contenders to their positions of power and their resources. So this is something I'm keen to resist, but I, thought, I think I'm a, I'm a funny study in that. Um, that I exemplify pretty much everything that Bourdieu is talking about in that text. But enough about cultural capital. I, <laughs> that's the problem. I get on these, I feel like I'm at work. <laughs> All of this linguistics, philosophy, sociology. I'm going to stop talking about it now because I'm off the clock. I'm not getting paid. <laughs> if you guys want any more of this, I'm going to have to start a Patreon or something like that. You have to sling me a buck if you want any more Bourdieu. There we go, I'm on my leisure time. I'm going to talk about RPGs because that's what I do on this podcast because it's fun. Got no relevant expertise, just enjoy it. Uh, but you guys aren't paying, so you can lump it. <laughs> so we got one more from Spike Pitts. Um, this is Spike Pitts, one of his particular talents is he always brings the topics back to RPGs, which is what we're here to talk about. Uh, I got this last, if I got this first, it would have been a whole different episode, uh, but I didn't, so it wasn't. <laughs> so I'll respond briefly. So Dave, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on the use of language when talking about RPGs. I think there's a lot of phrases that we use that to an outsider some or someone new to the hobby, the, the wording wouldn't be very clear or helpful. Things such as West Marches. You, you need to read an essay to understand what it means. Railroading is a similar one. Even just things like OSR and the acronyms, I've talked about them before. But, but more, more like normal words that carry an additional amount of meaning that it is a bit impenetrable. I wonder if you've got any thoughts on this subject. You can probably think of a lot more words yourself, but I think I've got my question across. Yeah, Colin, thanks. Absolutely. This is very pertinent, a uh, huge topic. I think my response is just going to have to be like a placeholder for a more involved response at some later stage. I see what the callings are like, see if people want me to talk more about it. Um, but I think you're right. These, um, these considerations of what our specialist vocabulary means and how inclusive it is uh, to, to use it, um, maybe without particular regard um, for, for, for the audience... Um, it's something I think about. Um, I mean, on the podcast, 
I said flippantly, this is, you know, it's my, it's my leisure time. I'm just throwing things out. Um, but that's my excuse on the podcast. I do use terms all the time uh, that I don't really bother to define. I just assume people will either understand or they pick up along the way. But that's because I don't really have an educational aim for this podcast. I really am just throwing things out and seeing who's listening. Um, but in my educational practice, this is sometimes something I think about a lot. Um, I teach philosophy. And... You know, you've got two layers, two layers of barriers. So I say to students, when you're reading philosophy, you know, you've got, you've got, you've got to look the words up. <laughs> and I, I know that sounds obvious, but um, here's somewhere I've done some empirical research. I, I'm a philosopher. I don't normally do empirical research, but I did get involved in a little bit of pedagogical research around barriers to reading. My colleagues were saying, how do we get to read more? Um, so we were trying to listen really carefully to what students said about why they why they didn't read or why they stopped reading and it often boiled down simply to vocabulary <coughs> excuse me vocabulary so students would say things like oh, i didn't get on with that writer didn't like him or her didn't get on with it but when you really pushed it what they tended to mean was i encountered too many words in the opening paragraphs that i didn't know the meaning of so i rejected it in favor of a text where the vocabulary was less challenging that honestly is what it often comes down to I see you have interesting discussions about academic writing. How approachable should academic writing be? Should we avoid long words and use short ones when we can? Or should we avoid our technical vocabulary? Of course you can't. You can't avoid technical vocabulary. You develop technical vocabulary for a reason. We've done it in gaming. We've done it for a reason. We've done it because terms can stand in for whole other discussions which we've already had <laughs> and we don't need to have again because we can point people to them. So then in my teaching I say, you know, looking words up in a dictionary isn't enough. <laughs> Linking to some of the other discussions in this episode because, you know, these words may have a specialist use in the context. And for that, you know, there's no substitute really for just reading a lot, having the discussions, asking people that you trust to help you understand the particular technical vocabulary of any subject. So it's something I think about a lot. had discussions about it on the Audio Dungeon Discord, actually. So you picked OSR as an example. OSR is a really good example because people feel like they're going round in circles trying to define that one and you feel like you've got close to a definition and it all dissolves again. Somebody else comes into the conversation and it all falls apart. And uh, so you tend to find people saying, oh, you know, we've been, we've been there, we've been round and round and round, not going to bother with that anymore. We know what we mean by it anyway. Now, of course, we might know what we mean by it, but someone new coming into the community um, doesn't know what we mean by it. They have to learn what we mean by it. So we have to, we have, to have these discussions. We have, to, <laughs> we have to have some discussion when we're trying to integrate new people into that community. I left a message on um, free throws. Uh, podcast about this. I don't know whether he's played it or not yet, um, but where I said a similar thing. Actually, refusing to engage in those discussions um, is not particularly helpful because I, I think it ends up being exclusive. You can say, we know what we mean by it, but we're not going to bother explaining to people that don't. Uh, and I think that makes you into an exclusive community. So we absolutely should be talking about these terms so I think so. I like to have I like to have these discussions. I like to have these discussions. That might sound a bit paradoxical, having said I'm not really interested in dictionary definitions. And I'm not interested in correctness. But I like to have discussions about what words mean, 
What are we meaning when we use a particular word? And I'm not particularly interested in um, identifying what's the correct use of a term, whether it's being used correctly, whether this is a correct use of OSR and this is an incorrect one. But I think for the reasons I've said, it's really important that we do have those discussions about what we mean by particular terms um, so that we are being open and transparent and we have a possibility of educating other people into those uh, language games if you like so there we go I'm not really sure that I've expressed everything I wanted to there that I've got everything out of that um, as I say I'll probably come back to that in a later episode see what the call-ins are see what people think about that but my quick summary of that would be you know we should be talking about this terminology we should be talking should be talking about usage we should be talking about what we mean when we use a particular term um, but I'm not particularly interested um, in those discussions about whether we are correct in using a particular term in a particular way. I've got to wind up now. That's a double episode. If you're still here, thanks for listening. I'll catch you soon. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to contact Dave, please leave a message on Anchor, email dpercentile at gmail.com, or find him on Twitter at D underscore percentile.